If you got your Bibles, open to Luke chapter 15 and then Genesis chapter 42. Luke chapter 15 and Genesis uh, chapter 42. Uh, as you flip that direction, I prayed through on whether or not this was supposed to be a bit of a coronavirus time uh, driven sermon or if we needed to jump back in and study our passages of scripture in Genesis uh, and the life of Joseph that we've been going through. And here's what I found. I think we jump back in uh, and let the Spirit speak through Genesis in the same way something that we could have tailored for this moment. And so if you'd like to catch up on some of the stuff that we've been going through, you can go back online or go to our podcast and listen to the story of Joseph. I believe we're on week 12 at this point, uh, going through the book of Genesis and uh, navigating the story of Joseph. But wherever you are, uh, just feel free to go back and listen to that. But this week, I think this lesson uh, is going to be one that literally strikes close to home. And so it starts off with this question. Have you ever been hurt by somebody close to you before? Have you ever been hurt by somebody close to you before? Um, just for the record, sometimes those pains are accidental. And I want to tell you a story about that today. These are like body hurts that happen just because somebody is within elbow shot, right, of uh, just being too close to you and they accidentally get, uh, get hit by an elbow. So when Autumn and I first got married, we had one of those moments. I had always lived with dudes in dude-driven houses. And so uh, what we would do if somebody needed something, we would just throw it to one another from across the room, even if it was something that should never have been thrown. And so that was just kind of the way we operated. When Autumn and I get married, we've been married for about two weeks, and I'm sitting on the couch, and as I'm sitting on the couch, she says, hey, honey, can you give me the remote control for the television? And here's the thing. Remember, I had lived with all dudes up to that point, so she's across the room about 15 feet away, and I grab the remote, and I go, sure. And I throw the remote at her, but apparently in the houses she lived in, electronics were not thrown, okay? And so what happens in that moment is Autumn is not expecting it, and she turns, and I threw that remote, maybe the best I've ever thrown anything in my entire life, and it hit her square between the eyes. Well, all of a sudden, the remote falls on the ground, the batteries have fallen out, and I just hop up immediately. I was like, oh my gosh, are you okay? And her eyes are watering, and she goes, I can't believe you would do that to me. I can't believe you would do that to me. And at that point, I'm just sitting there. I was like, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. Now listen, completely unintentional, and I do not throw the remote anymore ever again, okay? That's just the way that it works in our house, okay? It was an accidental hurting, and uh, because of that, she was very easy to let it go. Sometimes we get hurt by someone close to us emotionally. That's the heart hurt that we have, that hurt on the inside uh, that many of you felt that first time you broke up with someone that maybe you went to school with, and after the breakup, you still had to see them in the hallways, or you still had to see them in the parking lot, or you still had to see them on the athletic field, wherever it was, you saw that person again and again, and you just ached on the inside, you just wanted to shrink into, into the wall or hide away, or you were the ones who puffed up big and were like, hey, everything's great, life is better than it's ever been, how are you? I mean, that's kind of the way it goes, right? Hurt. When we've been hurt by someone close to us, close proximity, or when they've landed a shot on the inside of our heart, inside of our life, those things are difficult. But I've found in my own life, the pain that hurts the most is when someone is close to us, when they are blood, or we are connected to them by law, when they are family. Family hurts are brutal. Family hurts are hurts that don't go away immediately. And many times it can take years, decades, sometimes a lifetime is not enough to navigate that hurt. In leading into what we're going into with all this coronavirus stuff, there are some of you who this has brought up, emotions and experiences, because you have family members you haven't talked to in a long, long time that all of a sudden you are reconnected with and trying to figure out what it is that they're going through. Um, Luke chapter 15 Starting in verse 11, we get the story of a family struggle that's taking place. Look at Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. It says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me, the sh give me my share of the estate. And so he divided the property between them. Underline, give me my share of the estate. Not long after that, the, young, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, underline distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Underline squandered his wealth in wild living. What we find in this passage of scripture are some incredible hurts that take place 
in this small Jewish family. Jesus tells the story about a young man who tells his father, I would like my inheritance before you die. Read between the lines there. The young man has just verbally abused his father and said, I wish you were dead. It would be more profitable to me if you were dead than to have you alive and have to wait for you to die in order for me to get what I feel like is owed me. Not only that, but he's so serious about this that the father actually goes through with giving the son uh, this item, giving the son the property that's been divided. Not only that, the son sets off, and as he goes off, he squanders the wealth. He doesn't save it. He doesn't build a new life for himself. He just throws it away, and the picture is almost he throws it away just like the father knew that he would. The pain that's been established here in this passage is so great. There are some of you that have endured some pretty heavy hurt in your family situations. And maybe in this passage, you fall into the category of the father, the one who has been left, or maybe you fall into the category of the one who has hurt someone else in a pretty brutal way. Wherever it is that you are, we're going to talk about family hurt today and how to navigate it so that we can get back to where God wants us to be, which is, again, united in relationship and also uh, reconciled and, for, and a living in an attitude of forgiveness. If you're taking notes, a little quote here for you. The bonds of family are established by God for good reason. Let me say that again. The bonds of family are established by God and for good reason. If you are in a situation where your family situation is, is, a, is, a, is stretched or is, a, is in a, a difficult circumstance, just know it is God's desire that you find reconciliation in that, that there would be forgiveness, that there would come a place where, uh, again, under the umbrella of Jesus Christ, your family could be whole again it begs the big million dollar question today so how do we begin dealing with family hurt how do we begin dealing with family hurt when someone has walked out on us when someone has been greedy when someone has squandered the wealth and then let's just be honest when there is abuse that has taken place in a circumstance in your life when someone has physically emotionally verbally spiritually abused you is it possible for there to be reconciliation? What I love about the story of Joseph is Joseph is a template for us in how to get back to a point of reconciliation. We get to watch the way the Lord reconciles him with his family. Look with me, if you will, now at Genesis chapter 42. We're going to start in verse 1, go through some of the verses we did a couple of weeks ago, and in Genesis chapter 42, starting in verse 1, uh, we're going to look at what happens. So Joseph, remember, has been sold into slavery by his brothers uh, because of a vision that he had that made them feel deeply insecure. So he's gone off into slavery. He's been sold to a group of Ishmaelites who then sell him to a man named Potiphar. Remember, Joseph is then accused of sexual assault wrongfully in Potiphar's house, put away in federal prison. They can't execute him because they don't have enough evidence to convict him. And then, as he lives in prison for what is most likely more than a decade, as he waits away in prison, then all of a sudden, finally, Pharaoh has a dream. Joseph interprets it, and now Joseph is at the right hand of Pharaoh, the second most powerful person in the entire kingdom of Egypt. Now, what's crazy about that story is after all these years have taken place, after all these years have passed seven good years, when the famine finally hits, you know Joseph is sitting there going, Lord, Lord, I love my life. I wonder about my family sometimes, but I am so grateful. Joseph had two sons. He had a wife. He had to, his father-in-law was of great reputation. I mean, Joseph's life has really come together. But the family, family are bonds that God has given to us, either by blood or by law. And those bonds of family, God has given, to, given those to you for a purpose. And a time will come when you find out why. Why is it that God gave Joseph the brothers that he had given them? Were they supposed to be a distant memory or were they still a part of his story? What we're about to find out is his brothers are still very much a part of his story. Look at it again, Job, uh, Genesis chapter 42, and we're gonna start in verse one. It says, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, remember there's this big famine, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Now go down there and buy some 
come for us so that we may live and not die. Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went out to buy grain from Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother who was with the others, because he was afraid harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain for the famine was so severe in the land of Canaan also. Look at what it says in verse 6. It says, now Joseph was the governor of the land. Remember, he's the big shot. He's in the big position. The one who sold grain to all the people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, look at this. They bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Now stop there for just a minute. You got to picture this. Joseph has been abused by his brothers. And the last time that he saw his family, they verbally abused him and told him that his dreams were fake, that the vision God had given him was not real. Not only that. But they have physically beat him up and thrown him down into a pit where they then sold him into slavery. He was physically, emotionally, verbally abused, and then he's put in prison. The spiritual abuse. He would have carried great spiritual baggage with him because of what had taken place on the front side of his prison sentence. I mean, this is a guy who has been abused, and then all of a sudden, in this moment, his vision that he got from God when he was 17 years old has been fulfilled. His brothers are there kneeling before him, just like the stars in the heavens that he saw back in Genesis chapter 37. Here is this beautiful moment that he had seen when he was younger happening right in front of his eyes. But for Joseph, I guarantee you it wasn't what he thought it was going to be. This was not a moment of great triumph. All of a sudden, when he just felt like he was getting his life back together, all of a sudden the family shows back up and that hurt is revealed. There is no way you can read this passage and not see this, that God is sovereign and that the Lord had engineered this moment to take place. If you're taking notes, how do we begin dealing with family hurt? Number one, we must trust that God is sovereign in the big stuff and in the small stuff. We must trust that God is sovereign in the big stuff and in the small stuff. The reason I say big stuff and small stuff is because when it comes to God's sovereignty, He's not just about the famine that's taking place in Egypt and throughout the known world. God is big enough to cast that vision for Pharaoh and to use Joseph to interpret that vision. But God is also so powerful that he helps with the micro situations as well. He's not just about the big things. He also is very involved in the small things as well. This same vision that would bless Egypt is the same vision that would bring Joseph's family to be whole once again. I've said this verse several times through this study, and it's one of my favorites. Psalm 119.105 says, Lord, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Remember what David is saying there. Lamp is a picture of something that is perfect for step by step, moment by moment, day by day. It's a very small light, and that's a picture of Scripture. Scripture is good for what we do day by day, moment by moment. But then he also says, and your word is a light unto my path. That's great for the big macro things in this world, the big decisions, the grand purpose purposes that God has not just for us, but for the world that we live in. When it comes to your family, your family hurt is not a side issue for Almighty God. Let me say that again. Your family hurt is not a side issue for Almighty God. He is very cognizant of it. He understands that it is heavy, and he desires for you to be whole, especially in the city that we live in and in the state that I came from, Texas, and spent time in Oklahoma going to school there as well. A lot of us in Texas, Oklahoma, and Washington, D.C., we like to throw ourselves into our work, don't we? We like to throw ourselves into our work. And here's the deal. If we have an area in our life where there's struggle or where things are incomplete or unfinished or there's just a little bit of hurt or difficulty, what do we do? We just work through it. You just gut it up. You fight through it, and you just kind of move forward. The problem with that is when we decide that we're going to push it down and pretend that it's not there. For God, he is in control of all things, the macro things and the micro things, and his desire is for you to be complete. His desire is for you to be whole. If you're taking notes, write this down. The fulfillment of God's plan rarely looks like we think it will. The fulfillment of God's plan rarely looks like we think it will. 
In the case of Joseph, God's sovereignty is evident when he has the dream that one day he will be shining like the stars in the heavens and his brothers will bow down before him. The stars right there before him bowing down as he shines brightly and, uh, and uh, is a shining star in the universe. And yet, when the moment happens, I guarantee you what Joseph thought it was going to look like when he was 17 I can guarantee you that that is not the way it looked when he finally had that moment. He thinks his life is together, and then all of a sudden he is faced with his abusers. He is faced with the ones who have hurt him deeply. I don't understand this to the full extent, but I do understand it a bit. Some of you have heard the story before, but it bears repeating, and it's one I think I'll tell till the day I die. It's the story of how Waterfront Church came together. Waterfront Church started with a prayer that my father taught me years ago. He said the disciples' prayer is, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. This idea of complete submission to Almighty God. And I'll never forget, when Dad taught me that prayer, he said the problem is not that you learn to pray the prayer. The problem is that you learn to mean it with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. The reason is we pray that prayer, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do, but there are hooks and strings that are attached to it. It's God, I'll do whatever you want me to do as long as I can date a certain person. God, I'll do whatever you want me to do as long as I can work a certain job. God, I'll do whatever you want me to do as long as I can live in a certain city, as long as I can drive a certain car, as long as I can have a certain level of comfort. And if all those things line up, then it's your, it's my will, to, or it's your will for me to do what you want me to do. There is no lordship there. A disciple understands that your life is a blank check in the hands of Almighty God. He's the one guiding your steps. He's the one preparing you for the future. With him, our attitude should be, yes, Lord, now what's the question? So I'll never forget, I prayed that prayer for the very first time in my whole life with my whole heart. I prayed, Lord, I'll do whatever it is that you want me to do. And I'll never forget, when I finally prayed that prayer for the very first time, I prayed, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. When I prayed that prayer, I had a vision now, just for the record, before you rise up and call me crazy, I had a vision one time. That's all my little brain could handle. But in the vision, I had this vision of a place I'd never been and people I'd never met in Washington, D.C. I was 21 years old when I had this crazy little vision. It ended on the steps of the Capitol, uh, in the Capitol Rotunda, and there was an old man with a white beard who looked like me sitting in a wheelchair next to an old man, a younger man in a green shirt who looked like me. It was, again, one of the most bizarre things. And after the vision happened, I freaked out. I called my dad, who was a pastor at that point, and I said, Dad, what just happened? What does this mean? And my dad's response, he was a good preacher. He said, first of all, son, don't tell anybody. He said, time will tell if this was a vision from God or bad pizza. Those were his exact words that he said. He said, a vision is just for you and for your heart. He said, second, write everything down, all the details. And so sure enough, I wrote down, old man, white beard, young man, green shirt, Washington, D.C. Over the years, we watched God create something in us that we never thought possible. The Lord began to craft a vision. I didn't know in the beginning that we were planting a church. I just knew that at some point, there was going to be an old man who looked like me and a young man who looked like me at the Capitol, one with a white beard and one in a green shirt. Now, over the years, I told some people about this crazy little vision in the same way that Joseph did in Genesis chapter 42. And I remember thinking, maybe I'll be one of the ones that God uses to change our country. Maybe I'll be one of the ones to start a great revival. Um, I was ready to do whatever it was God called for me to do. Remember, God is God of the macro, and he is also God of the micro. As many of you know, my father and I were at odds and when I had the vision, what was crazy that I didn't ever realize was all the different pieces in my life that vision would end up touching. My father and I were at odds. And by the time we moved to Washington, D.C., my dad and I would go from being struggling in our family situation to all of a sudden being the best of friends. What I didn't know is that God would give me a partner on this journey and my amazing wife, Autumn, and that we would get to go and do this thing together that we would have the most amazing body of believers 
people that we long for. And this last week, I have realized just how much you mean to me. I love you so much, and I miss you deeply. But as you go through time, all of a sudden, the Lord began to show that this wasn't just about starting a church. It was also about making my family whole again. Many of you know the end of the story. My dad, 36 hours before we moved to D.C., complained of stomach pains. And when he did, um, it would end up being neuroendocrine stage 3 pancreatic cancer. He would end up living nine extra months. And two weeks before he died, my dad, who had been on chemo, stepped off of the plane here in D.C. because two of our church members had gotten him an opportunity to pray at the United States Capitol two weeks before he died. When he steps off the plane, guess what my gray-bearded father had from chemo? His beard had grown back stark white. And this week is always extra special to me. My dad went to pray at the Capitol on St. Patrick's Day. You can't make this stuff up. Go back and look in the annals of the Library of Congress. He prayed at the Capitol on St. Patrick's Day. And guess who was wearing a bright green shirt? Unbelievable. Just like the story of Joseph, I had an idea that this was something special. But there was no way I could have known exactly what the Lord was going to do. Macro, I got to be a part of coming to the Capitol, and I got to be a part of us starting a church of amazing like-minded believers. But on the micro level, I got to be with my dad two weeks before he would pass away. And after a member of Congress pushed his wheelchair to the Capitol Rotunda, my dad looked up at me and said, you saw this, didn't you? And I could tell him with my whole heart, yes, I did. Now listen to me. Guys, a vision from God very rarely means exactly what we think it's going to mean. A vision from God is given to us so that when we stand on the edge of a knife, he can tip the scale in one way or another to get us to go exactly where it is that he wants us to go. When it comes to family hurt, whatever vision and purpose God has given for your life professionally, whatever vision he's given for your life with your new family, if you are connected to someone by blood or by law, God's desire is that relationship to be whole. God's desire is for that relationship to be reconciled, for there to be forgiveness that takes place. It begs the question here, are you trusting God with the big and the small things? Are you trusting God with the big and with the small things? Now look with me, if you will, at Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 7 through 20. We're about to get Joseph's response with the culmination of the vision. Look at what happens here. It said, as soon as Joseph, uh, Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Underline, he spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Now stop right there for just a minute. This is important to lay out. When someone has abused you, you remember them vividly, don't you? When someone has hurt you physically, emotionally, spiritually, verbally, you remember their face, you have that replay you can hit in your mind, and you remember very vividly who that person is. But quite often, they do not remember you in the same vein of accuracy. That's the case here. Joseph recognizes his brothers immediately. He recognizes his abusers. He remembers the pain that they had caused him. And he couldn't even tell them who he was at this point because he was filled with such fear. Look at what it says then in verse 9. It says, Then Joseph remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my Lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. Oh, that must have set him off. His abusers to call themselves honest men at this point. You know that just would have made his blood boil. Look at what happens, verse 12. No, he said to them, you've come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12, 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and when one is no more. They even bring up Joseph here. Joseph said to them, it is, ju or, it is just as I told you. You are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, 
Jacob's, you will not leave this place unless your younger brother comes here. Send one of your number to go get your brother, and the rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in the custody in custody for three days. Now I want you to notice something here. There are ten brothers that have come. It says that Joseph had treated them harshly. Joseph, after treating them harshly, looks at them and says, ah, you're trying to tell me that this is the story? Even though he knows that they're most likely telling the truth. They're his brothers. He knows their story. He looks at them and says, I'm going to hold nine of you hostage while one of you goes back to verify the story that you have told. Now watch what he does next, starting in verse 18. On the third day, for three days, he puts them in custody. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison. Underline, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go and take back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and you may not die. This, uh, this they proceeded to do. Now stop here for just a minute. Joseph responds harshly in the moment. Says, I want you all in prison. I'm going to treat you the same way you treated me. I want all of you in prison. And then I'm going to let one of them go back to your father to verify the story. But three days later, Joseph calms down and the harshness settles. And he comes back and says, how about nine of you go and just one of you stay as the hostage? Now listen, this is incredibly important when it comes to dealing with your family. We can be extra harsh with the people we love the most. It's a really bizarre human feature. If you're taking notes, write this down. How do we begin dealing with family hurt? Number one, trust that God is sovereign. And number two, know when you're being harsh. Know when you're being harsh. We can be so harsh with those people that we love the most. And in this circumstance, Joseph blows up. He's got a whole bunch of pent-up anger, frustration, and hurt with his family. And he blows up, but three days later comes back and says, upon further review, let's flip it. One hostage instead of nine. Now, just for the record, if you've ever seen in a football game before, when they have a circumstance where in the football game, a referee throws a penalty flag, and as the penalty flag goes up, it doesn't look like a penalty's taking place. So what do the fans do? Oh, the fans freak out. They get so angry. It airs on the jumbotron. And then what do they do? Now they've instituted instant replay to where the referees can go back, they can look through the video footage, and then the referee comes back out and says, Upon further review, ruling on the field stands, third down, right? Or they come back and say, upon further review, the player's knee was down. We are reversing the call. And here's the deal. Upon further review is the level of fairness so that what's right takes place in the game. That's the goal. What's right takes place in the game. And we need to do the same thing with our families. You'd say, but you don't know what they did to me. You don't know the abuse that I had to endure from this person. You don't know the pain and the baggage that I still have. My word to you on that is the godly thing to do is to remember we were called to be gentle with one another. That does not mean you give someone the keys to your house that has hurt you. That does not mean you give someone full license to hurt you. We place good boundaries, but make sure those boundaries are fair and not riddled with harshness because of the baggage that you carry. It's a hard thing to do. If you're taking notes, write this down. It is easier to be overly harsh with family than with strangers. It is easier to be overly harsh with family than with strangers. I want you to think back about times that you've blown up about something that was not worth blowing up over. Have you ever done that with just a complete and total stranger? It doesn't happen often. You don't just see someone on the street and they're like, it's nice out today. And you're like, is it? Is it nice out today? I don't think it is. And by the way, don't ever talk to me again. Nobody does that. But some of you do that with people close to you. 
All they have to do is say the wrong thing. All they have to do is not follow that pattern of life that you feel like they were supposed to follow. All they have to do is not do something in the way that you have settled that it was supposed to be that way or a time that it was supposed to happen, and then we blow up at them. And when we do that, again, it's not a godly thing. When we respond in that harshness, when we've been hurt, it's not okay for us to continue hurting others. It's not cool. Just for the record, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, Paul lays out kind of this principle. Here's what he says. Ephesians, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Paul writes, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. Underline all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. For in doing, uh, doing useful things with his hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. We need each other. Look at what it says in verse 29. And let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. The picture here in the passage is that we would come to a point where we don't justify our anger with one another any longer. That we don't justify our malice, our hatred, our slanderous words against someone any longer. But that we come to a point where we realize we can stop the hate. We can stop it. It can end and it can die with us. Or we can continue stirring the pot. We can continue planting the seeds. What if you came to the point that you decided, as far as I'm concerned, the family hurt and the family rivalry stop with me. The hurt that's been done to me no longer will have legs. In Joseph's circumstance, those three days, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall at his house. All of a sudden, God has brought his home life, his past, together with his work life and his present. The Lord is desiring for him to be whole. And Joseph, in such a godly manner, portrays for us, stop, take a deep breath, and allow the Lord to give you insight. Gentleness is what the Lord desires. There is never a point when God desires for you to bite someone's head off. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. It begs the question, and some of you might have needed to hear this in Coronaville. Are you ready? Should you dial it back a bit? Should you dial it back a bit? Are there some people that you are now in close proximity to that it is time for you to dial it back a bit? It is time for you to pull back and to just calm down so that the hurt can stop with you. One last set of verses and we'll call it a day. Look at what happens next in Genesis chapter 42 and let's read verses 21 through 24. Here's how the passage ends. It says, they said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. But we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben replied. Remember, Reuben's the one way back who had said, let's not kill Joseph. Let's let him go. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against this boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an account for his blood. And they did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. Listen to verse 24. This is crazy. He turned away from them and began to weep. Underline and highlight, began to weep. This man is the second most powerful person in the world at this point and he begins to just weep right there he turns his back but then he turned his back to them again he had Simeon taken from them and bound before their very eyes underline he had Simeon taken from him so much happening in this set of scripture what happens is after Joseph tells them the new plan nine of you can go but one of you has to stay at that point all of a sudden they start talking in their Hebrew language well for Joseph he can speak the language it was the language he grew up with and he's been speaking to them at this point through the Egyptian language so all of a sudden they think they're having the secret discussion and one of the brothers goes ah, this is happening because of what we did to Joseph all those years ago. 
And Joseph is sitting there, and he's listening. They don't know that he is interpreting their conversation, and he's hearing them basically show remorse for what they've done to him. This would have caused such turmoil with him. He has felt so in control. He has felt so on top of things. And then all of a sudden, Reuben comes up, and Reuben says, I told you to leave him alone. Whether Joseph knew that or not, all of a sudden he realizes, maybe they weren't all against me at this point. And man, he's so filled with emotion. The picture is, he turns his back to them, and he begins to to weep family hurt we can act on the outside like it doesn't matter we can act on the outside like we're different now like we've moved forward we've moved past that i'm so glad i'm so much bigger and stronger than i was when i was in that circumstance joseph's the second most powerful man in the world and when his past is brought up he turns and he weeps because the villains that he had had in his life for so long, all of a sudden seemed to be changed men. If you're taking notes, write this down. How do we begin dealing with family hurt? Number one, we've got to trust that God is sovereign. Number two, we've got to know when we're being harsh. And number three, we've got to leave the door open. We've got to leave the door open. In Joseph's circumstance, I promise you, getting out of prison was a miracle that he looked back on and was so grateful that God performed for him. Getting to get married, getting to have two sons was a miracle that I know he looked back on fondly. But this one, this was the dream that he dare not even speak, that he could be reconciled to his brothers who had abused him. And all of a sudden he begins to see that they not only claim to be honest men, but they seem to truly be honest men. He leaves the door open instead of slamming it shut in this circumstance. He could have thrown him out. And instead, he leaves the door open. There are some of you that have been hurt so deeply in your families. It is a very godly thing to hope for reconciliation. Let me say that to you again. It is a very godly thing for you to hope for reconciliation. Now, you don't embrace it until it's time but it is a very godly thing to hope for that. It begs the statement, over time, God is faithful and people can change. Let me say that again. Over time, God is faithful and people can change. Now, I want you to notice it's people can change and not people will change. There are going to be some circumstances that are beyond your control that this side of heaven, the person that you are hoping will change does not. But the hope is that God is strong, that he's sovereign, that he's in charge, that he's in control, and that through his power, change is possible. Hold out hope and trust. You want to talk about examples of how people can change? We've experienced them all this week. You know who it's happened with? The people who are the worst with technology on planet Earth, pastors, all right? There are so many pastors that we are friends with on Facebook that are in their 60s or 70s or even 80s that all of a sudden are doing a live stream this week, all right, or that are doing online services for their congregations. In fact, there are so many people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s that have shunned technology up until this point that are now posting online different Bible studies. They're posting different stuff on Facebook Live or on YouTube, and we're watching, scratching our head. One of our longtime members, Megan Shinnewark, her dad is a pastor up in Oregon, and she sent me a Facebook message a couple of nights ago and said, you're not going to believe this. Dad is on on Facebook Live. I said, you're kidding me. That's amazing. She said, here he is, older than 60, and posting a sermon on Facebook Live. It was so exciting to get to hear. People can change. I'm not saying they will. I'm just saying they can. And for believers in Jesus Christ, we have to hold out that hope that God is bigger, that God is stronger, and as long as there is breath in our lungs and time on that clock, that there is still a moment for God to do a great work. To believe otherwise is to discount the power of God's sovereignty. One last set of scriptures, and we'll close today. Flip back over to where we started, Luke chapter 15, and I want to read you the end of the prodigal son story. Look at Luke chapter 15, and we're going to look at verses 14 
through 24, the father here leaves the door open for reconciliation. And the father is not symbolic of us. The father is symbolic of almighty God because we are the prodigal son. We are the ones who have wandered away. We are the ones who have squandered the inheritance that we've been given of life through the spirit. We are the ones who have squandered it with our sin. Look at what happens in verse 14. It says, after the son had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? But here I am starving to death. I will set back and go, set, uh, set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up, look, and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. It says, verse 22, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's go have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So they began to celebrate. Stop there for just a minute. It's a picture of God with us. We wake up in our senses and realize we went our own way. We pursued our own sin, but all that's done has ended us up with the pigs in the slop, barely scraping by and surviving. All of a sudden the son wakes up and goes, I need to go home. I need to go back, but I don't know if I can. I just want to become someone in his household. The son prepares this statement. Father, I sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I've hurt our family. And then he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He says, just make me one of your hired men. Just make me one of your hired hands. I just want to be in the house. I just want to be near you. And it says he went home and the father left the door open. Staring at the window, the father sees the son in the distance. What I love about the imagery there is God is watching for you. He is waiting for you to come home. And it says, while he was a long way off, the father sees the son, and instead of making him grovel and give his speech, the father runs to the son. It's the picture of the heart of God for each one of us. He didn't want you to grovel. He sent Jesus to go to you. The father then runs to the son. And I love it because the son gets out part of his speech, but notice this, he doesn't speak the whole thing. The picture there is the son going, no, no, father, father, please, please give me some space. I stink, I'm disgusting. You don't know what I've done. I've, I've wasted all these years. I've wasted all our money. I've wasted all this time away from you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You gotta picture the father here. The father's probably sitting there so giddy and so excited that the son is home. He's going, are you done yet? Are you done yet? I don't need to hear your speech. You're home. You've walked through the door. Come on, let's do it. Come here. I don't want to let go of you. Guys, clean him up. Let's get him a robe. Let's put a ring on his finger. The picture there is he is part of this family, present and future. And then he says, for my son who was lost now is found. He's home. picture here in scripture is of how God pursued us through his son Jesus Christ but we are to follow the example of Jesus Ephesians chapter 4 that we just read the example that's given here is that we are to be hopeful that people can change that people can come home even the ones who've hurt us deeply and that our families can be whole that we can live in forgiveness it begs the final question today. Is there a path back to fellowship with you? Or have you closed off every door? Have you walled off your heart so that they can't hurt you again? Boundaries are not bad. Boundaries are not bad. But for you to close off completely, 
for you to seal that tomb off is not God's will. As long as there's time on the clock, as long as there's breath in your lungs, there is still hope for reconciliation. I pray that this brought you hope today. I've got some great stories that maybe one day I'll tell you of how the Lord has used this in my own life. Hope, hope is something that is very real. And the devil wants to steal it from you because where hope is gone, the heart aches. But when the Lord fulfills it, it's a tree of life. It's something that brings us joy every single day, no matter our circumstances. To remember that the same God who brought us through the difficulty in the past is the same God who will bring us through to the future. I love you guys. Don't tune out. The best part of the service are these next few moments. If you just bow your heads for prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around but just me. At our church, we call this our time of reflection. There's nothing mystical or magical about this time. It's just a chance for us to stop and to process how we're different because of the songs we've sung, the sermon we've heard, and specifically the scripture that we've read. Is there anyone here today that would just say, Zach, would you pray for me? I need to trust God in the macro and the micro. I need to trust God in the big things that are going on right now. And I also need to trust him in the little things as well. You know what I've found? I've found over the years that typically we don't have trouble with one, or we typically don't have trouble with both, but we typically have trouble with one. Maybe you're the type of person that would say, I trust God in the things happening with my own life, but I'm scared to death about what's happening in the world right now. I'm filled with such fear because I don't know what tomorrow holds. If that's you, I just want to pray for you that you would trust God today, that you would trust that he formed the universe. He certainly is in charge of it, in control of it right now. And then for the other side of you, maybe you're the one that would say, Zach, I trust God with the universe, but there's some deep family hurt that I'm navigating. There's some deep internal struggles indicative to just my life that I need to trust God with control of those things. There may be some of you that have found out you're out of work this week. My heart goes out to you. I'm broken for you, and I've been praying for you. If that's you, either on the macro or the micro, even in your living room or wherever you're watching this. In fact, some of you may be watching this years from when it's been recorded. If that's you, I'd like to ask you as an act of worship just to lift your hand where you are right now. If that's you, I'm going to pray for you. But I want to invite you to pray for this as well. Say this simple prayer. God, I trust you with things that are big and with things in my life that are small. I trust you with all things. Second, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, when it comes to my family, when it comes to those closest to me, I've been a little harsh. I've not been kind. And I need to dial it back a bit with nobody looking around but just me because it may be some people sitting in the room with you that you've sinned against. It might be your mom or your dad or your grandparent that you talked to on the phone. With nobody looking around but just me. If you're here and you'd say, Zach, would you pray for me? I need to dial it back and I need to be gentle and kind. If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now. I'm going to pray for you. But if that's you, your simple prayer is this. God, help me to be gentle. God, help me to be gentle. Because that's how Christ is for us. God, help me to be gentle. Because that's how Christ is for us. And then last but not least, maybe you're here and you'd say, Zach, I'm the one who has walled off. I'm living a different life now. I've built a decent career. I'm moving forward and trying to do things in the future, but the honest truth is I need to leave the door open for relationship. If that's you, nobody looking but just me, I just want to pray for you, and I know that's a very hard decision to make. If you're here and you'd say, Zach, pray for me. I need to leave that door open. I need to have hope that people can change. I need to have hope 
that the Lord can work in my circumstance. If that's you with nobody looking but just me, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now. I want you to know I know how hard that is. I know that that was a request that was incredibly heavy. If that was you and you just lifted your hand, I'm going to pray for you. But your simple prayer is this. God, give me a double portion of courage. God, give me a double portion of courage to hold out hope. God, give me a double portion of courage to hold out hope. I can't promise you that change will happen. But our God is so powerful. I've seen it so many times. Hope is something that has to do with our faith. Trust him. And then I'm going to pray that God gives you a great testimony. I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll sing two more beautiful songs of worship. Father, thank you for this day and for your blessings in it. Thank you so much for the time that we've had to study your word, to dig deep into scripture. And Lord, thank you. Thank you for that amazing story of the prodigal son. And Lord, we also thank you for Joseph laying out that roadmap for us when we have been hurt of how we can move back towards reconciliation. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ for those who need to trust you in the macro things or the micro things. I pray that you would give them courage and faith today. And Lord, that whatever it is they're holding on to, that they would give it to you, that they would place their trust in your power and sovereignty. And Lord, for those who have been too harsh and need to dial it back a bit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray that you would fill them with peace, with gentleness, and Lord, that they would find a way to respond in kindness rather than to blow up at those who are closest to them. Help us to cut each other some slack. And Lord, for those who need to leave the door open for reconciliation, help them not to wall themselves off Lord, I pray that you also would not allow them to get hurt again, but that, Lord, they might truly hold out hope that you can do all things, that as long as there is time left on the clock and breath left in our lungs, there is still a work of reconciliation that you can do. Lord, I pray that from right here in this moment, across space and time, that you would stir in hearts through your Holy Spirit and that you would create amazing testimonies of your greatness. And Lord, I pray that you would knit families back together. Thank you, God, for who you are. Lord, you've done so much through this virus already. I am so interested to see the future that you have for us. Thank you, God, for loving us. Thank you for being there for us. And Lord, thank you that we can worship you no matter where we are. Thank you that you hear us. Thank you, thank you. It's in Jesus' holy name we can pray. Amen.